This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 8 of Office Hours, and we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. In confessional Protestant circles, we use some shorthand Latin phrases that we might not all understand, even though we use them frequently. Sola Scriptura, according to Scripture alone, is one of those phrases. Perhaps none of the Reformation solas, as we refer to them, is more misunderstood both by Protestants and Roman Catholics. Many understand it to mean that the individual believer and his private interpretation of Scripture is sovereign over all other authorities. Is that, however, what Martin Luther intended when he testified at Worms that his conscience was bound by the Word of God? Bob Godfrey joins us to give some perspective on these issues. He is president and professor of church history at Westminster Seminary, California. He is a Reformation scholar His latest book is Learning to Love the Psalms. This and other faculty titles is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Always great to be here. How does Scripture talk about its own authority? One of the objections that critics of Sola Scriptura sometimes make, and I know you've seen this, heard this, read this, is that Scripture itself doesn't teach Sola Scriptura. How do you respond to that? Well, like a number of theological topics, it's somewhat complicated. And yet, when one looks at the Scripture itself, what one sees is that the Scripture teaches with abundant clarity that it is the Word of God that it is the revelation of God, that it comes to teach us about God. And then in various places, the Scripture talks about its completeness in teaching us about God, that, uh, you know, you think of classic texts like from Timothy, that Scripture equips the man of God to be complete, the various statements in Psalm 119 about how even the simple have understanding of salvation more than their teachers because they know the Word. The implication there certainly is that the great things of salvation are clearly revealed in the Bible. And it's always curious then that those who attack Sola Scriptura attack it in the interests of insisting that various things not taught with any clarity in the Bible are necessary for salvation. Or clearly and expressly described as inventions of the church, right? So it's not just things that are not clear, but Rome admits that she does things that are not taught in the Bible, and she claims to have the authority to impose those things on us. Right. You know, and some of those Roman impositions, despite Rome's dancing around, are in contradiction to the Bible. So the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, but Rome says Mary is a mediator. So that seems like a contradiction. And uh, I'm sure there are various Roman subtleties that to try to uh, <laughs> dance around that, but it seems just on the surface of it to be a contradiction of tradition set over against the clear teaching of Scripture. We could also look at the Roman doctrine of the memorial Eucharistic sacrifice, right? In every Roman Mass, once the elements have been, in their view, transubstantiated so that what is present is no longer actually bread and wine, although it looks like bread, it tastes like wine, it's not really, the substance of it is said to have been transformed or transubstantiated, then they turn and offer a memorial propitiatory, right, wrath-turning sacrifice. And, of course, the whole book of Hebrews— says 
No, you can't do that, right? No, exactly. Christ offered one sacrifice once for all. And the fact that Rome uses particularly the language that this sacrifice offered by priests in local churches is propitiatory, is necessarily diminishing the once-for-all complete sacrifice Christ offered on the cross. Our Lord explicitly addressed the, as you were saying earlier, the tension or the contradiction between the tradition of the elders— I'm looking specifically at Matthew 15, at the beginning of the chapter, verse 2, where the um, Pharisees and the elders came and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus answered them and said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? There's a clear juxtaposition there of Scripture as the Word of God over against man-made traditions. Exactly. And you would be hard-pressed to ask how Jesus could have stated it more clearly, that what we are bound to is the commandment of God. And he goes on then to quote the fifth commandment, so he clearly has inscripturated revelation in mind when he's making this contrast with traditions that uh, may even have some value. Washing your hands before eating is not a bad thing. Thing. My mother told me to do that. Uh, <laughs> but it was not a way to salvation. <laughs> that's right. Cleanliness is next to godliness, but it isn't. I think that's a Methodist point of view. I think you have to be very careful about that. (laughs) It was John Wesley who said that. All right. Well, yeah. And so I'm in favor of washing my hands, but not as a religious act. Well, not as a religious requirement for being in good standing with God. So when we talk about sola scriptura, we're not talking about a particular verse where you can go and say that the Bible uses the words sola scriptura, and therefore we're talking about drawing an inference from the way Scripture speaks about itself— the way the various figures in Scripture, prophets, apostles, our Lord himself, talked about the uniqueness and authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, you could think of Moses' word to Israel at the uh, end of Deuteronomy, where he uh, talks about the word is your very life. He's talking about the word as his revelation to the people of Israel. And if it's your very life, that assumes a completeness to it. Now, you know, Rome, again, would make a distinction. Well, of course, the Word is life, but the Word comes to us both in the Bible and in apostolic tradition. In the Council of Trent in the 16th century, appeal is made over and over again to apostolic tradition that is not found in the Bible. There's a recognition on Rome's part there in the 16th century that their traditions are not found in the Bible, and yet they insist that it was taught by the apostles. The problem is when you take those statements of Trent from the 16th century, the Roman Council of Trent, authoritative to this day in the Roman Church, almost every decent Roman historian today will admit that there is no evidence that the apostles taught these traditions or that the Church believed these traditions for centuries afterwards. So, the claim of Trent as a historical matter really cannot be substantiated. And so, in the 19th century, increasingly recognizing this, Roman apologists like Cardinal Newman come up with the idea, well, these traditions are in seed form and develop, grow like an oak grows out of an acorn. The oak doesn't look much like the acorn, but it was there in seed form already way back when. Well, that's a nice try, Cardinal Newman. You get, you know, one point for trying, but that's really not what Trent says. Trent doesn't say these things were in seed form. It says the apostles taught these things. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And that was the claim really through the medieval church, that what the church was doing is what they had received in this 
alleged unwritten tradition, which is what makes it so difficult to query, right? Uh, because who knows what it is? It is implicitly whatever they say it is. And when you question them on it, eventually they have to go back to their doctrine of implicit faith, right? You have to trust the church implicitly because, A, the traditions to which we're appealing aren't written down, and therefore we can't show them to you. Right. So it's an endless circle, right? Right. And, you know, in the Middle Ages, you could at least say that there was no clear historical evidence available to many people in the Middle Ages that these things didn't go all the way back to the apostles. So you could sort of understand how they argued these things. But since then, it has become clear these things don't go back to the apostles. But Rome is really not facing up to that. And as you know well, in the 19th century, when Pope Pius IX called the First Vatican Council, which uh, at his pressuring defined the papacy as having an infallible teaching authority when it teaches ex cathedra from the throne of Peter, Pius IX was pressed on this. How do we know what is tradition? What is binding tradition? What is required of us? And Pius IX, in a moment of shocking frankness, said, I am tradition. (laughs) And what he meant by that is the Pope is the only one who can tell you what tradition is and what's required by tradition. So, it is what they say it is. It is what the Pope says it is. So, as parents, you and I are parents, we have grown children— This is the, in effect, this is the papacy saying, because I said so. Exactly. And it has about that much authority and credibility. So when we say, as Reformed Christians, that we believe in sola scriptura, we are reasserting the unique, sole, final authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture over against the Church. And we're also saying that the Scripture is, if you will, the mother of the Church, rather than the Church being the mother of Scripture. Right. And we believe that what we're saying is the way the early church fathers actually operated. They may not have articulated it exactly the way we do because they weren't facing the Roman Catholic Church as it developed later, but their functional operation was to always turn to the Scripture as the sole authority in the life of the church. One of the biggest arguments in the early second century was over when we should observe Easter. And I think that at the heart of that argument was really the authority of Scripture, which is why it was so heated, because it almost divided the church. And Polycarp was on one side, he was in favor of keeping it connected to the Passover, and others said, well, no, our Lord was raised on Sunday. And they were both arguing from Scripture. We ended up going against the Cordo Decamans and ended up observing it on Sunday. But the argument was really about the authority of Scripture. And when they wanted to settle things, they consistently went back to Scripture. That's right. Absolutely. So when did it shift? Well, I think you can see it making a fairly decisive shift in the time of Basil the Great, who— looked around and realized, it was a moment of real honesty, he looked around and realized there were lots of things the church was doing in its public worship service that couldn't be proven out of Scripture. And so he concluded, since the church must be doing things correctly, and since the Scripture hasn't told us to do these things, it must be there's some oral tradition that's been handed down from apostolic days to guide us in what we're doing. It was, I think, on his part, an honest sort of observation. And the curious thing to me as a historian about 
the appeal to tradition is that the appeal to tradition always seems so conservative, so insisting on a sort of static view of reality. And yet when you actually study the history of tradition, nothing seems to change more and at sometimes even faster than tradition. Somehow what I do today is an elaboration of tradition so that I can do something today that's different from yesterday, but tomorrow it'll be looked back on as binding tradition. It's a very fluid notion in the history of the church. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. In the second century, there's a treatise, or sometimes called a letter, to Diognetus. And we don't know who wrote it. Lots of authors have been suggested. But it's a very well-written and a very orthodox piece of work in the middle of the second century. And he speaks specifically about the tradition of the apostles. But if you look at it in context, he talks about the law and the prophets, the gospels, and then he says the tradition of the apostles. Well, he's clearly there in context referring to the epistles written by the apostles and not to an extra-canonical tradition. Yet they did talk about a tradition received from the apostles, and they were arguing with the Gnostics and other heretical groups. Do you think maybe they gave in to the notion that there was an extra-canonical tradition to which they could appeal as a way of sort of defeating all of these groups that were springing up saying, we have a new revelation or a new way of understanding things? Yeah, it's sort of ironic because in seeking to defeat the Gnostic claim to the authority of a Gnostic tradition, they seem to unintentionally set up the possibility of an appeal to an apostolic tradition. The basic argument was that the Gnostics claimed to have a secret tradition handed down by Christ, and the church rightly responded. If Christ was going to hand a tradition to anybody, wouldn't it be to the leaders of the church he established, the apostles and the bishops who came after them? If we don't have those traditions from Christ, it's incredible that the Gnostics would be given those traditions. That's a very valid and helpful argument, but it then can be misused into saying, and therefore Christ did give a tradition to the bishops that have been preserved. 
So you have a secret you claim, you Gnostics, in case the listener isn't sure, the Gnostics claim to have secret insight into the nature of reality and salvation and Jesus. And so wherever the Bible doesn't tell us something, a Gnostic would come along and fill in the story and say, these are the secret words of or secret teachings of Jesus or an apostle or, or whomever uh, about the childhood of Jesus or what happened after the resurrection, before the ascension, or whatever blank they wanted to fill in. And the church, in effect, responded by saying, well, we have our own secret. You can almost hear two kids on the schoolyard saying, you know, nana, nana, boo, boo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So it ends up creating a huge problem for the church because it ends up marginalizing the scriptures so that by the time we get to the Reformation, the scriptures have almost in some ways been pushed to the side. Right. And again, you can see the development in the early stages with people like Basel, sort of fourth century, where this stuff becomes more prevalent in the writing of church fathers. The focus initially is on liturgical practice and um, things like making the sign of the cross. So that's an interesting thing to discuss, but they're not talking about tradition as adding essential doctrines to the teaching of the church. You could never find any of the apostles or Jesus talking about the assumption of the virgin or the virgin sitting at the right hand and being a mediatrix, a co-mediatrix, right, a co-intercessor with Jesus, which is one of the reasons why when Rome wants to impose this doctrine, she has to do it ex-cathedra, right? It's one of the very few things that Rome has actually declared all Romanists must believe to be faithful Catholics, that the Virgin was assumed out of this world without dying, and she is also seated at the right hand and hears prayers and intercedes on our behalf. Right. And, you know, where an appeal is made to Scripture, it's usually very bad exegesis. You know, when Jesus looks from the cross and sees his mother at the foot of the cross and says to John, behold your mother, some Roman Catholic exegetes, not all of them, but some of them say, well, you see, Jesus is establishing <laughs> Mary as the mother of the church. No, what's happening there is Jesus is recognizing the weakness of his mother as a widow losing her son and asked John to take care of her. That's what's happening. Far from being a statement about the strength of Mary, it's a statement about the weakness of Mary. But that's the problem with some of the Roman Catholic appeals to the Scripture. It's topsy-turvy. This is a really important point. A lot of this comes down to really bad, untenable interpretations of Holy Scripture, which are used as sort of a jumping-off point. And then there's all this elaboration, which we see with the addition of the five, we would say, false sacraments, which the Roman communion imposed, the Western Church adopted and imposed successively in the high to late medieval period, so that you see them showing up in Lombard sentences. They're not really actually ecclesiastically sanctioned as such until the 13th century, and not finally unequivocally imposed until Trent. Right. And so we're talking about here, we all agree, all Christians agree that the Lord instituted the baptism and the Lord's Supper, but then Rome has five, which are confession or penance, yeah. penance, marriage, holy orders, uh, last rites, and confirmation. So Rome makes a kind of glancing appeal to Scripture, but in some cases, some of the Roman scholars simply say, well, in effect, we're just making this up. Of all of these, the only thing you could remotely really appeal to Scripture for to make them into sacraments would be the anointing with oil in James. 
But even there, it's not sacramental. No, or you could appeal to James, confess your sins to one another, but there's nothing priestly about that. So, yeah, there are verses that at first glance might seem to have some bearing on these uh, Roman sacramental claims, but on further analysis are not establishing a dominical, that is, Jesus' institution of a sacrament, the way he clearly instituted baptism and clearly instituted the Lord's Supper. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So when Protestants say sola scriptura, according to scripture alone, what do we mean by that? Sometimes when Romanists critique us, they critique us as if we're saying that I get to take my Bible and go into the closet and read it by myself, and then whatever I say it means, that's what it means. Is that what we mean by sola scriptura? No, we have never meant that every individual can come to a thorough knowledge of the Bible by sitting alone and studying it on one's own. Part of what is regularly, I think, confusing in conversations between Roman Catholics and Protestants is that we use the word church very differently. Roman Catholics normally use the word church to refer to the hierarchy of the church, to the office bearers of the church, to the pope, the bishops, and the priests of the church. That's the church. And when they talk about the teaching authority of the church, they mean the teaching authority of the pope and possibly the pope and bishops in council. Protestants should not react to that by denying an important teaching function to the church. Christ has established the church. Christ is building his church. But when we talk about the church, we're talking about the consensus of the faithful, the unity of the people of God around the word. And it's in the church as a community that we believe we come to the fullest understanding of the Bible. On the face of it, sola scriptura would seem to be fairly evident in Scripture if you just look at the very beginning of the Bible. What is the very first thing that God did? Scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do that? God said, let there be, and there was. So the first thing we see is God speaking, and it's his word that creates. Then we learn in the prologue to the Gospel of John that in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing came into being except that which came into being through the Word. And then Paul says that God is recreating a people through the Word. So all that seems fairly self-evident, that the Word is really absolutely essential and the thing that God uses. Right, exactly. And that's why Protestants have gathered around the Word. That's why, lest we appear to just be anti-Catholic in this show, my great concern today is how Protestants are wandering away from Sola Scriptura into storytelling, into pop psychology, into all sorts of things taking place in Protestant worship services that seem to have drifted significantly away from the Word. And actually, by looking at that, perhaps uh, Christians today can have a greater understanding of why this happened to Roman Catholicism historically. They didn't run away from the Word. It was a very slow drifting away from the Word. And that's why you can still find among some Roman Catholics an attachment to the Word. They didn't reject the Word, but they allowed their traditions more and more to replace the Word and marginalize the Word. But that's happening in Protestantism today. In mainstream Protestantism, our critical faculties have marginalized the Word. And in a lot of evangelical Protestantism, it's our emotions that have marginalized the Word. And we, especially in this Luther year, 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, need to assert we all need to come back to the Word and make the Word central. You mentioned Luther, and and rightly so. So in 1521, here is Luther, April, and this is when we're in studio recording this episode, 
There is Luther before all the powers of the world that then existed. Representative of the papacy, you know, a papal theologian, the imperial court is there. And when he finally, you know, is giving an account on the second day of his appearance, he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Right. Explain why that's so important for all of us Protestants. And we hope Romanists who are listening to this will see what we mean by this and maybe reconsider. Why is it so important to say my conscience is captive to the word of God? That's a very important statement to analyze from Luther because some people have said, well, you see, the ultimate authority for Luther is his conscience, not the word of God. Because he goes on to say, and to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. But what he means there is to go against conscience subject to the word of God, captivated by the word of God is neither safe nor right. And it's not an appeal to the authority of his conscience. It's a statement that when the word of God speaks to me clearly, I have to abide by the word of God. I cannot suppress my commitment to the Word of God out of respect for Pope or Emperor or anybody else. And that's what Luther concluded. He was driven by the Word of God and felt he must submit to it. He said over and over and over again to the Roman authorities, show me where I have misread and misinterpreted the Word of God. And they were unable to do that. In fact, they conceded that he was right. In correspondence, if you read the correspondence that went back and forth in the years leading up to Worms, he's writing to Eck and he's writing to other theologians and they're going back and forth. And you can see him working out what we know as this doctrine of sola scriptura. You know, when he said popes and councils have contradicted themselves, that wasn't the first time he'd ever said that. Right. And yeah, Luther came slowly to recognize this. He was a medieval Christian. He assumed that Bible and tradition agreed. And it was only as he came to a clearer understanding of what the Bible said did he begin to see that this was at odds with some of the traditions he was being taught. And particularly at Leipzig in 1519, when he debated with Eck, Eck was mastering him on the appeal to the history of the church and to the councils and to the popes and to some of the church fathers. And Luther, in that confrontation, then began to see more clearly that what he was finding in Scripture didn't square with what the church had been teaching as its tradition. So, Bob, I have a really good idea. And I think that everybody— I doubt it. (laughs) But go ahead. Give it a try. And I think that everybody should adopt this good idea and put it into practice. And it will bring lots of benefits personally and corporately to you individually and corporately to the church. So I'm going to make a case that this idea is something that ought to be adopted and imposed, this practice. Let's call it a spiritual discipline. It will be really good for everyone. Like walking a labyrinth. (laughs) Okay. There are Protestants making that sort of thing now. Exactly. Walking a labyrinth or spending a weekend in a monastery, some kind of really valuable, you know, where you're not allowed to speak for 24 or 48 hours and you have to— Your wife might embrace that as a discipline (laughs) for you. She might, indeed. And uh, where we have to fast for a certain number of hours. So we'll call this, you know, Project X— And it's a thing that would be really good for everyone. Give up something for Lent. Okay. Here we are in Lent. That's right. As we record this, we're coming towards the end of Lent, which, of course, has no basis in Holy Scripture. What? Exactly. Are you suggesting it has no basis in Holy Scripture? Wasn't Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days? And very little basis in actual church history. Yes. Right. It's only in the fourth century that you begin to see church councils talking about Lent. So, right. Okay. Jesus nowhere suggests that his 40 days in the wilderness are a pattern, an example that the church has to follow. Exactly. I want to make that clear. Okay. So that gets to my point. How do you 
as a sola scriptura confessing Reformed minister respond to my big, great idea that's going to be so useful and valuable to everybody in the church, if only they'll adopt it? My response is that if individuals want to adopt certain individual disciplines for themselves, I don't think we have to necessarily stand 100% against that. But we have to say their good idea for themselves cannot be imposed, even as a matter of wisdom, on anybody else in the church. And one of the important elements of sola scriptura is the element of Christian freedom. We are not bound by good or bad ideas that other people have. We are only bound by the good ideas God has. And that's an essential part of sola scriptura. We have a freedom in Christ not to have even good ideas from faithful people imposed on us if they're not God's ideas. And that's an essential characteristic of what the ministry in the church is about. The ministry is supposed to tell us what God has to say. I am very little interested in the good ideas ministers have apart from what God has to say. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.